Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Denver City Council is asking Denver voters to remove 100 year old language from the city charter related to the Board of Adjustment in an effort to modernize zoning exceptions and variances. Real estate shareholders Blair Lichtenfels and Zach Siegel bring in land use attorney Caitlin Quander to discuss referred question 2M, how it works, what will happen if it passes, and its potential impact on the city. Hello again, Blair. Thanks for agreeing to do our second of these podcasts. I think what we'll call it our soon-to-be-named Brownstein Real Estate slash City of Denver podcast. But now that we're doing a second one, I think that means that this is like officially a podcast and not just a one-off, which is exciting. We can take suggestions from the listeners to the extent there are any. Yeah, feel free. Please reach out to us and come up with a punny name for Blair and I to brand this podcast with. We'd appreciate it. Blair, we had a really excellent conversation on our last podcast about the upcoming election, specifically in the context of the mayor's race and city council races. But today we thought we'd dive into depth on one of the referred questions, question 2M, not to be confused with question 2N, but we are really fortunate because at Brownstein, we have an amazing group of folks that are experts in a wide variety of legal and business areas of concern to our city. And specifically on the land use front, we have some of the best land use attorneys, in my opinion, in the country. And one of them is sitting in the room with us today, our colleague, Caitlin Quander. Uh, Caitlin is someone that we feel really fortunate to call both a friend and colleague, um, and is one of the many people at Brownstein that adds uh, expertise on all sorts of matters and is a a fantastic resource for me, who is someone that is not a land use attorney, but frequently needs to call on our land use colleagues for expertise. So we thought we'd bring her on. A little bit of background on Caitlin. Caitlin is not just a fantastic attorney. She's also the current president of NAOP in Denver. And she was appointed by the mayor to serve on the planning board and is going to be the chair uh, I can't remember, Caitlin, when you told me you're going to be the chair, but soon. Come June, July, yeah. Come June, July, she will be the chair of the planning board. So uh, Caitlin's expertise is not just beneficial to our clients and our colleagues at the firm, but also beneficial to our city. So we thought she'd be the perfect person to come on and qu- talk about referred question 2M. Yep, super happy to have Caitlin here today. And um, we thought this was perfect to talk about. We went into sort of a deep dive as to how the election works in terms of the elected offices. But in reading the ballot, there are probably a lot of clients, colleagues, constituents, and hopefully Denver voters who have questions about how referred question 2M works, what will happen if it's passed, and the overall impacts on the city. So, Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us. So maybe you can kind of just start by telling us a little bit about the purpose of referred question 2M. Yeah, um, thanks so much for having me on. Um, The main purpose behind this ballot measure, and it's a referred ballot measure, which means that Denver City Council voted and referred it to the voters to put it on the ballot. And the goal is to update the procedures for zoning exceptions in the city of Denver. And this is really done in two steps. First, if it's approved, it amends the charter, the city charter, to remove language about the Board of Adjustment. And second, it then requires that those procedures for zoning exceptions be addressed in the city codes. The idea is pulling it out of the charter, a really long-standing, hard-to-amend document, and move it into the city code so it can be a little bit more nimble. 
So, Caitlin, I, you know, I mentioned a minute ago that I am not a land use attorney. I'm a transactional real estate attorney. I do deals every day. That's the, the core area of my practice. So for those of us that aren't land use experts, can you just zoom out for a second and give us a little bit of perspective on what zoning exceptions are, the current scheme for how they're handled at the city, and a little bit on the practical implications of what it means to take language about the Board of Adjustments out of the city charter? <laughs> So there's really two types of zoning exceptions right now. You have an administrative adjustment that can be approved by city staff. And right now it's, it's limited to pretty minor deviations from the standards that you find in the city code and, and particularly the zoning code. The second is what is called a variance and that can only be granted by the board of adjustment. The board of adjustment is a citizen volunteer board appointed by the Denver city council and the mayor. Um, so all of those variance decisions happen after a public hearing. And really, this matters because no matter how, how well written a zoning code is, often there's these realities that need a slight deviation from the strict letter of the code. Um, sometimes a zoning exception allows a development to accomplish the city's goals for a site more effectively than a strict requirement. Or maybe there's a conflict in the code. So often, you know, the instances we, we give are if a, if a developer or a homeowner is trying to um, do a new construction or a home addition and they look at the code and they say, well, that just doesn't work for my project, that's where a zoning exception is maybe the appropriate next step. In fact, the, the reason that, one of, uh, that this was brought forward with Councilwoman Sandoval, um, she's one of the co-sponsors along with Councilwoman Knich, was that a homeowner came to her and described their experience of uh, being denied a variance to build an ADU or accessory dwelling unit for their aging mother. He eventually did get his variance, but it certainly put a spotlight on um, you know, the extensive process, time, energy that, that these sometimes take. So it sounds like there is an existing process for addressing these types of zoning exceptions. So can you give the listeners a sense of why this needs to be updated or some of the rationale that city council used to suggest the update? Yeah, so I think high level, the city has probably had a little bit of a, like city staff, the zoning administrator, Tina Axelrod and her team have probably had a running list of, of wish list for things that they would clean up. And this really implements those and allows those imbalances that are just, you know, they are required by the code to say, no, you can't do that. And to bring that flexibility um, back into the process and allow them to make some, you know, very reasonable calls. Um, and I will say this is an opportunity or time where the city is being proactive. Uh, they have kind of had this running list of items they'd love to clean up. Um, Councilwoman Sandoval and Kniech came together and really brought this forward, both for referred question 2M and then the following um, text amendment that would be approved by city council if it's approved to do that cleanup. Um, and, and I would say, just from a process standpoint, the charter is 100 years old and things change over 100 years. Things are different from 1920. But because this is really embedded in the charter right now, it doesn't allow for that flexibility. So the concept of pulling it out of the charter and moving it into the code makes a lot of sense. So, Kaylin, do you think it's fair to say that at its core, if referred question to M passes, the scope of authority for city staff will increase relative to the Board of Adjusters, but it's a targeted increase for geared at efficiency and flexibility for reasonable interpretation of the code. 
Is that really what's going on here yeah, at a high level? That's a great summary of it, Zach. Um, that's exactly what I describe. And I would say it really does house a lot of that in the zoning administrator mm-hmm. who is in the planning department. But I think you'll be seeing decisions made by staff with their approval in a very limited, um, as you say, kind of targeted area. And I guess a, just a quick follow-up question to that is like, I think it's helpful for listeners to understand when the Board of Adjustments is taking action and the types of zoning exceptions that they're looking at. So I read a statistic earlier today when I was doing a little bit of prep for the podcast that 87% of the zoning exceptions that are sought are actually for residential projects. So it sounds like there are a lot of what we might consider minor that may be more efficiently processed via city staff than the Board of Adjustments, which actually requires public hearing to take action. That's right. I mean, you think of a, an example like a setback requirement, right, or um, or a fence height. So those are going to the Board of Adjustment right now. So you have a single-family homeowner who wants to do an addition and has to go through, you know, a three- to four-month process to have something teed up for a hearing, have to go to a hearing, which can see, feel pretty intimidating for, you know, a, a single-family homeowner, uh, and go through this hearing and hopefully get this variance granted so that they can then process their home addition, for example. And so, yes, the intent would be for some things that can now be processed administratively and be a lot more efficient for those homeowners. I will also say in the commercial context, we do appear before the Board of Adjustment for clients. Um, One example that we had uh, involved um, kind of a conflicting requirements of the code. So, If you know the city of Denver, you know that the downtown's kind of on an angle, right? And you have this point where the downtown and Colfax meet, and we have this grouping of triangular lots. So we assisted a client before the Board of Adjustment because the city code requirements had requirements around loading. So they had to pull their trucks in to offload trash at the same time that they have transparency requirements on the first floor about um, kind of windows and and making sure that you have a street pedestrian feel. Well, you couldn't meet both. You couldn't have the loading and meet the transparency requirement because of the shape of the lot. And instead of staff being able to say, well, that doesn't make any sense, let's adjust it and not require quite the high level of transparency, we had, they had to go through a three, four month process, have a public hearing. and, And I will say, I mean, We got there because it all makes sense, but it took time, money, energy that really wasn't very necessary. I think the other piece, and we often talk about it in real estate, is predictability is so important. And while the Board of Adjustment, I think, does make decisions, you know, in a reasonable way, that's an unpredictable vote, right? And that can can give some discomfort in development. And so, and particularly here, and I will say this is one of the changes they would be looking at, but right now to get an approval from the Board of Adjustment, it requires a super majority of four out of five. And sometimes someone's sick or absent. And then you, <laughs> so, so that one of the things they are looking to change is that would be three out of five, which is much more consistent with what you see in other cities. So, so in effect, if referred question 2M is passed by the voters, it's possible that um, commercial developers will see a, a greater level of predictability and a decreased level of risk around some of these instances where you can't comply with two conflicting sections of the code. So in some ways, Absolutely. could potentially drive down ultimate costs, which could end up being passed down to renters or homeowners or um, other users in the city, while really not compromising sort of what CPD staff thinks is appropriate and you know public health, safety, and welfare and other things we have to think about. It captures it really well. 
Does it also have an implication for timing? Like, do we anticipate that these some of these variance requests will be processed quicker if they run through city staff rather than waiting for the Board of Adjustment? Yeah, I think so. I mean, an average Board of Adjustment process on a good day takes three to four months. By the time you get teed up, schedule the hearing, do the public notices, and, and through the conclusion, you know, the hope would be administratively they'd be able to review that and process it more quickly, almost as part of a site development plan, essentially. And I know that's something we're always talking to our clients about, just what are the timings for your development project or your other real estate transaction? And there are all sorts of delays that are sometimes entirely not within the municipal world. But if seeking a variance is something that you're after, the knowledge that you'll be able to process it quicker with the city, I think, has some intrinsic benefits as well. Mm-hmm. Kaylin, can you talk a little bit about the, the current criteria for obtaining a variance from the city and what makes it so challenging? Yeah, so when you go before the Board of Adjustment, much like um, if you were before a city council or other body, there are legal criteria written into the code that they have to evaluate the application of request against. And right now, one um, it, it really doesn't allow them to be reasonable, even if they see a practical solution. Um, in particular, the language that's used right now is called unnecessary hardship. And that's a little bit of a, an archaic legal terminology that that we are seeing cities move away from, and Denver ideally will if all of this passes, um, to redo away with unnecessary hardship and have a broader variance approval criteria really around justification, Um, where a project faces a practical difficulty or a more permissive threshold for administrative approvals needed. I think that that will also help. We often, you know, really struggle with clients. What is our unnecessary hardship here, especially when it's a new project, right? If it's an existing home and you're doing addition, there may be site constraints, but if it's a new project, demonstrating that it's not sort of self-imposed can be really difficult. And I will say another change that we will see is um, financial hardship cannot currently be considered. And and they are changing it in some minor ways um, in, in the text amend- amendment that would be approved that would allow for that to be considered in some limited circumstances. Caitlin, can you just give a quick example of financial hardship just so people understand why the fact that that cannot be considered can sometimes be a real impediment? Oh, let's think of an example. Um, You know, in order to meet a uh, height requirement, they would have to make really, really substantial investments um, to a structure. And instead, allowing them to deviate slightly would save them substantial money. But you can't do that. That can't be your reason right now. It has to be an unnecessary hardship under the code. So you have to find some other criteria that you can satisfy that has nothing to do with the fact that the investment required to strictly comply with the code is more significant than the actual benefit around the project. That's right. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the BOA. We've talked a lot about unnecessary hardships. But the other thing that changes in this um referred question to M is sort of the administrative adjustments. And so this is something that is currently allowed under the code in a very narrow set of circumstances. So can you tell us a little bit about um, how that process might change if referred question to M is passed? Yeah. So you think about the, the split of authority right now between the Board of Adjustment and city staff, and it's very heavily weighted to, towards having to move something to the Board of Adjustment to make a variance decision. This would, in certain circumstances, open up the administrative zoning exception opportunities 
to allow more flexibility. And so some examples of that are kind of giving a little bit more latitude to the zoning administrator to make decisions. So instead of you know having to go to the Board of Adjustment, if the setback is only going to vary by 20%, say, the zoning administrator could decide that. If they wanted to go to 100%, still the Board of Adjustment, for example. Another is making decisions around federal or state law-based requirements. Best example here is ADA, right? In order to comply with an ADA aspect, you need a variance. The zoning administrator can now, if all of this passes, could automatically make that decision instead of forcing you to jump through all those hoops with Board of Adjustment when you likely know you're going to get that approved. One of the ones, um, especially because a lot of my work is in adaptive reuse and, and looking at historically designated properties, involves landmark properties. And right now, if you need a um, to vary from the code, you both have to go through Landmark Preservation Commission for their typical review of, of whatever is being modified or added, but you also then get to go to the Board of Adjustment, sort of a two-step process. Here, if these changes pass, they would allow Landmark Preservation to make the one finding and recommendation, and then the zoning administrator could make that change. A couple of other small ones, but important, um, is, for example, um, public utility equipment placement. I mean, we're needing more and more um, here in Denver, Excel kind of pads and spacing, and they are getting bigger. And especially as we do more and more EV charging, those are going to keep getting bigger. And um, a lot of sites need variances to allow for that placement in a place that would otherwise be the setback or something. Distance and spacing requirements. So there are some uses that uh, currently, for example, an industrial use can't be um, within a certain circumference of residential uses. Under the code right now, some of those uses the zoning administrator can allow a variance for, some they cannot. And this would make it a little more consistent across the board, I would say. Also, construction errors, I don't see this as much in the commercial context, but in the residential, you know, you have the building plans, they construct the building, and oops, they built it one inch into the setback. And the idea that you would go, what, not make them knock the building down seems pretty difficult. But right now, they have to go through the, the whole Board of Adjustment process wow. and co- yeah. cross their fingers that they can get a variance for this error. This would allow the zoning administrator to make those calls. And then the example I, I shared earlier around conflicts of code, right, where you have these conflicting provisions, that would move out of the Board of Adjustment and into the zoning administrator's control. It sounds like there are a lot of really practical changes that we anticipate especially on the administrative adjustment side. What about changes to the review standards for variances themselves? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones to call out for um, for everyone, and, and there are others, but is around affordable housing. So they are adding a new criteria that the Board of Adjustment could consider if someone is requesting a variance, if that adjustment would allow that project to deliver more income-restricted dwelling units than otherwise would be created without it, that could be a valid criteria for that variance. And you said a buzzword for Blair and I, especially in the context of our, our first podcast on the mayor's race, because obviously affordable housing is playing a really dominant role in this election cycle. Can you give me a sense for the scope of how this might be an affordable housing solution going forward? Do we think it's small? Do we think it's large? Are we not sure yet? I think it's probably relatively small because there, uh, you know, I mean, the number of instances and, and the number of units, I would probably say more, right? If I can vary my setback, I can deliver two more units or 10 more units. 
And I think the number of times you're going to see that request is relatively small, but we talk about it around affordable housing. Every every little bit counts in the city right now, and I think that that change um, could really make a difference. So we've talked about a bunch of things that we think will be really positive changes if, in fact, referred question 2M is passed. We've talked about enhanced flexibility, things being more predictive and easier for both um, residential owners and commercial developers. We talked about efficiency, and it's efficiency not only from the the homeowner or the developer standpoint, but also the city, right? The city, it will be so much more efficient for them to not have to utilize their time on, on BOA cases that maybe are shouldn't be going all the way through a public process necessarily. Are there any other sort of advantages that you've heard about? And I guess, have you read about any, um, are there any sort of naysayers or any kind of public people, things you've read where people are less interested in seeing this pass? I haven't really. uh, So this is a referred measure, meaning that city council referred it to the voters. And so far, there is not any formal opposition to the measure. It's supported um, and sponsored by two council members, Robin Knich and Amanda Sandoval. And and as I talked about off the top, there's really two steps here, because the referendum 2M vote and voting in favor or against, uh, if if you vote against, we, we stop. And our current current status remains the status quo. You go to the Board of Adjustment, there's not as much um, control and flexibility with staff. If 2M passes, then you'll see, and I think it'll happen relatively quickly, there's already draft language around it, I've reviewed it, that the city council would approve a text amendment to the zoning code to do a lot of these changes we've been talking about. So I want to be clear that, you know, a lot of these components, these are not in 2M. 2M just sort of takes it out of the charter and lets them make easier code changes. And then you'll see this companion text amendment come in the next month or so to city council uh, that would make all these more detailed changes that build in that flexibility we've been talking about. That's really helpful to understand that it's a two-step process and we're at step one. But if we don't, if the referred question doesn't pass, then we stop and we don't move on to step two. No step two, yeah. No step two. <laughs> you said, you mentioned that you've seen the text of the amendment and that you think it'll be processed relatively quickly. Do we think that there'll be opposition to the text amendment if 2M is passed? And also, do we think there there's another opportunity for folks to say these are some other practical changes to the code that we would like to see before we have something in the code itself that says this is how we're going to process variances on a go-forward basis. Well, I think, uh, as Westford put in a recent article, this this whole discussion is a relatively dry zoning issue, right? No, Caitlin, so... this is exactly, this is very <laughs> exciting. Blair and I were really excited to talk to you about it, so we disagree wholeheartedly. But, uh, but the idea that I think a bunch of people are going to show up on, on a Monday night at city council in opposition to this, I think that's pretty unlikely. Are, are there some you know further recommendations they would like to see or tweaks? Maybe. I will say from a, a drafting standpoint, the kind of companion measure that would go to city council has already gone to planning board. And so from a draft standpoint, um, which did recommend approval, from a draft standpoint, it's a relatively locked document at this point. Now, a city council person on the floor can always bring an amendment. So if something was spotted or, or needed, um, they could. But I think the the draft language that is available online for anyone who wants some fun reading um, is is relatively locked in at this point. And then it'll be about implementing that um, through changing various city procedures. 
So I think if anyone is still listening after this reiteration of this very dry zoning (laughs) issue, which of course we all find fascinating, I think that we would say that this seems like a really positive thing coming out of uh, city council as well as CPD. And we definitely applaud their efforts in trying to make this more streamlined and, and more efficient. It also seems incredibly pragmatic for the city to say, hey, we think that we can do this more efficiently for everyone mm-hmm. and we want that we want voters to consider this and think about the practical implications for for development on what we might consider a small scale with uh, like an attached dwelling unit at a residential property to large scale commercial implications like Caitlin is talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that. You're right. The city should be applauded for this kind of proactive effort um, to, re- to refine the code and make the process more easy. Yeah. So we'd like to thank Caitlin for her expertise and her time today, and also to thank our amazing colleague, Angela High, for her research and input into this um, podcast. Yeah, I, I guess the, we'll only other remi- well, the only other reminder is Election Day is still April 4th, so please <laughs> vote. And we will be back, hopefully, to talk to Caitlin about this or another exciting issue soon, but we will see how it plays out on Election Day. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.